Neil Walgren is the Chief Operations Officer of MAG Capital Partners, a private equity firm that specializes in sale, leaseback, and industrial real estate investments. He brings nearly two decades of leadership in operations and capital markets. Prior to MAG Capital, Neil led a Bay Area real estate investment firm, raising capital for over $200 million in projects. He came to real estate investing following a career in military aviation as a C-130 pilot in both the Air Force and Navy, logging over 2,500 flight hours with combat tours in both Afghanistan and Iraq. In this episode, we talk to Neil about the details of investing in single-tenant net lease industrial properties, the keys to building trust with potential private equity investors, the unique benefits to investing in net lease industrial, and the key lessons from his military background that helped him to be successful raising private equity. I'm Neil Henderson, and this is The Road to Family Freedom. Before we get to this week's show, we'd like to make you aware of something. We are self-storage investors. We buy existing self-storage facilities and vacant buildings that can be converted to self-storage in the Sun Belt. We buy them with cash and some with loans, and we use private lenders who become equity partners in our deals. These equity partners share in the cash flow and the profits when we sell. When we find a deal that we are considering, we call the equity partners and offer them a share of the ownership secured by the property. So if you've ever driven by a self-storage facility and thought, I wonder who owns those things, and you have any interest in learning more about the storage business, we'd love to chat with you. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash storage. That's roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash S-T-O-R-A-G-E and set up a time to chat. We look forward to speaking with you. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Well, Neil Walgren, welcome to the road to family freedom. Thanks, Neil. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate you having me on the show. Absolutely. And I, you know, we're a part of the, uh, the society of the correctly spelled Neils. <laughs> we should formalize this. We should formalize this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. So before we get into more details about your background and, and real estate, can you give our listeners a quick rundown of how you got into real estate in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's always interesting to me to hear how people fall into this. Cause I feel like not a lot of people as a child say, Hey, I want to, you know, get in the real estate space. So <laughs> you, you know, it's a pretty good variety, but uh, mine is probably a little less, less common than most, but uh, ended up having a, a career in the air force originally flying the, the C-130 Hercules. So I was an air force Academy graduate. I uh, ended up doing about eight years um, flying the C-130, some deployment tours in OIF in Iraq and OEF in Afghanistan. And I uh, really just got to, you know, see experience a lot, work with a, a great team. And, um, you know, after that chapter came and went, I ended up moving out to California and it still wasn't fully over the flying bug. So I was uh, flying a little bit with the Navy Reserve out there for a few years. I'd got my MBA with Texas A&M. And ultimately, was working for a, a renewable fuel startup down there. Some family factors came in, led me to moving up to the Bay Area. And that was how I got my first foray into real estate. And that was in, uh, I guess, back in 2015, about six years ago. So joined an equity-focused commercial real estate firm down in, in the peninsula near, near Saratoga. And it was kind of a neat business model. And it was actually my you know kind of opportunity came... It was a, a, an old family friend had started this business and, you know, really invited me to, to kind of come along, knew my, my background, you know, knew I kind of had the, the quantitative skill set. Um, but really, you know, he's like, look, I can teach you real estate. And it was interesting. And we, we came in and the business model was ultimately kind of a, an investor marketing machine. 
where we had a, a network of you know largely retail investors, a lot of men and women in tech, a lot of, you know doctors, lawyers, professionals who would come through our company, and then our company on a deal by deal basis would partner, and we would provide the cash equity required to close commercial real estate investments. So ultimately, we would partner on a project basis with. You know, usually developers or commercial real estate brokers, people who had a you know unique skill set and a perfect geography in a particular asset type, but lacked access to capital. So we would form a JV, we would bring the cash and, and the investor relationships, and they would ultimately be the focus on the asset. So we we had probably about six operators we'd work with. You know, we had a, a one guy did you know, multifamily, you know, class B multifamily in Northeast Atlanta and did them, you know, over and over, did them really well. And we would bring the equity to those deals. Another, another group did, you know, multi-tenant retail in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Another one was a land guy up in NorCal with some development piece on senior assisted living. And lastly, one of the groups we worked with um, was Mad Capital, who strictly did industrial single tenant net lease. And it was kind of neat. Just being able to see, you know, really deep dive into each of these asset types, you know, look at the underwriting, you know, how the structure is, see the relative risks, see how they performed, you know, over the years and how close to projections they were able to hit. And, you know, I really, in my opinion, got to get exposed to a lot of different asset types, especially early on in my real estate career, and ultimately really enjoyed the, the I would say, simplicity and predictability while still being able to create value that comes from the industrial single tenant at least, which is where I'm at today. So you had no, you really had no real estate background before coming to this job ever, correct? Yeah. I mean, prior, prior to about six years ago, strictly you know, flying and uh, renewable energy startups, but, um, but yeah, the whole real estate piece of that relatively recently. Day to day, what is your primary focus? You know, you talk about you know investor relations. I know your your title is chief operations officer, correct? Correct. Is your job building relationships with investors to bring into the equity firm? Um, yeah, it's a great question. So you know we have a, we have a small team that I oversee within Mag Capital. We made the decision about three years ago to strictly bring our ultimately investors and capital markets in house. So we we do everything all under one roof. We're able to have, you know, in our opinion, a better degree of control. But yeah, ultimately, you know, I oversee the, you know, largely organic growth of our investor group and really increasing and strengthening our ability to raise capital for, you know, quality industrial real estate projects. You know, and ultimately the stronger your investor group is allows you to be more competitive. You can close quicker. You know, you and I were just talking about on a residential side, being able to do all cash and a, a quick close, you know, you can outcompete higher offers. And we're able to compete as a, a small investment group with larger REITs because of that ability to close quickly and, you know, sometimes all cash, whatever that may look like. But ultimately, all of the the equity responsibility and, and bringing that to the table to close you know, falls under my my purview. Unfortunately, had this experience twice in the last like week of losing a, a residential property to an all cash offer. And then we also, my partner, and I lost a self storage deal to Oof. an operator who, and it was a really great deal. So I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little salty about it. <laughs> we lost it to an all cash offer to a owner who had no experience in self storage. Um, oh, wow. Who took, who took their offer over an offer from an operator, us that had over four, you know, that owns four self-storage uh, facilities already. So it all cash is, it's, 
it's good to be cash is king. And if you can come it to is. the table armed with that, it's a really, it's a really powerful tool, especially in this market right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially over the last, you know, six months, you know, industrial is really no different than any of the other asset classes that have just seen a flood of cheap capital kind of enter the markets. And, you know, more and more we're seeing, you know, just this abundance of cash. So, I mean, the ability to not only be able to raise capital, but to close quickly is the differentiator in a hot, hot market that we're seeing now. Yeah. So for, you know, for a a retail investor who's maybe not familiar with the way that private equity works, can you give us a a brief understanding for somebody who's maybe coming to the Tate, you're hearing a pitch from you and help them understand what it is that they're getting? Yeah, no, great question. You know, something unique about the single tenant net lease space, you know, ultimately the risk of the deal, which is really the, you know, core piece you should be looking at for any real estate project the risk is it's still tied to the actual bones of the property. It's equally tied to the credit worthiness of the tenant in a way that you don't necessarily see on multi-tenant projects or you know areas where the tenant credit is important, but not crucial to the deal. Um, so we're coming in and really there's a, a much larger emphasis on the success or failure of a project based on if your single tenant stays in business or does not. So the, the way we approach this, and there's a lot, a lot of different groups of different strategies, but Ultimately, what we do is we buy through what's called sale leaseback. And so we are, are buying real estate from typically manufacturing companies that are owner occupants. So they, they run the company. They also own their own real estate. Typically, what's happened is these companies have been in, in business 40, 50 years, and the owners has looked for an exit. Right? They usually find that exit by selling their company to a private equity firm. And those private equity firms will buy operating companies, usually have a a portfolio of different manufacturing companies, and they see this as a way to strengthen the overall portfolio. They are experts in growing the operational companies. Uh, They do not like owning real estate. They're not able to get the returns they're looking for. And ultimately, they see a higher internal ROI by investing capital into their companies as opposed to buying real estate. So that's their kind of motivation. They come to us and go, hey, we just got a new portfolio company. We want to sell the real estate. Let's do a sale lease back. So at that point, now we do, you know, we're negotiating the price of the building that we're buying from them. And at the same time, as part of that same transaction, we're negotiating the terms of the lease that they're going to lease it back at. A little bit more of an art form than a, a standard, you know, real estate acquisition where you come in, set a price and buy it. You're in, in bed together in a much longer way where your seller becomes your tenant, typically signing a new 20-year lease. So there, it's a it's a much more you know I would say intimate relationship between you know a buyer and seller because you have that ongoing relationship afterwards. But to your point, you know you talked about private equity and that that private equity and understanding the the credit worthiness of that company that is the basis of that new lease becomes a, a really a paramount piece on understanding the risk and understanding the security of this single tenant asset that you're buying. And so we're talking about triple net lease, correct? Absolutely. Even one step further. So if your your listeners may or may not know, you know, standard triple net uh, means that the tenant is going to be responsible for taxes, for insurance, and for maintenance slash utilities. So basically any of the operational expenses of a, you know, owning real estate fall on the tenant instead of the landlord, which makes, you know, a landlord much more predictable and puts the uncertainty of those, you know, variable expenses on the tenant. When it's a single tenant, 
then oftentimes that triple net aspect actually expands to the roof, to the outer walls, to, you know, HVAC, even pavement, landscaping, you know, really everything from end to end of, of the property there, all that falls on the tenant and they continue to both maintain it themselves and pay for all the upkeep. And how, as an equity partner, as one of your investors, how am I making my money? Is it through, uh, is it just cash flow? Is it, are you guys able to push value in some way that provides an equity bump? Explain it to me. Like I'm yeah, five. No, it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, when people ask me that, you know, how does this, especially compared to say, uh, you know, a value add multifamily, how would, how would this stack up against it? And I would say you're going to have day one above market cash flow. That's highly tax advantaged through depreciation with a moderate value add component. So the first thing we, we look at when we structure these deals is that cash flow piece. So you, you have a 100% occupancy, and that typically will result in cash flow, depending on where you buy, somewhere between about 6 and 12%. A lot of times people have exposure of, of triple net properties, say looking at a Walgreens in Los Angeles or you know some standalone, high, highly well-known tenant. And th- those are great, but the risk is going to be very, very low on that, especially in a major metro. And those might only kick out, you know, two, three, maybe 4% if you're lucky to investors. What we play in is, is a slightly different space where we're more in the Midwest. We're buying what are called sub-investment grade tenants. These are tenants that are not, you know, publicly listed. They're not on the stock market, but they are very profitable. And we actually, we do our own internal analysis of the company's, you know, their, their books, their financial metrics. We look at balance sheets, liquidity ratios, how much debt they're carrying, et cetera. And, you know, once we paint this picture, we say, hey, you know, these guys have a a great track record. We like their financial picture. You know, I would say the delta between actual risk and perceived risk of sub-investment grade tenants allows us to take on projects that generate closer to 8, 9, 10% per year on cash flow from day one. So ultimately, you have annual rent bumps built into the lease. So, you know, as an investor, you're usually going to start with a minimum of eight and then stair step up year by year with a highly predictable set of cash flow coming in. And then the second piece is how do we add value? Um, really, that's comes down to three pieces, two of them being really predictable. So the first is we pay down principal, you know, the fixed rate real estate debt that supplements the equity and buying these properties. So, you know, those you're just, you're paying down the loan, right? Uh, the second, this one's kind of interesting is, you have a a highly predictable way of increasing NOI on your properties. So because there's no expenses, every increase in rent, which is already built into the lease, directly correlates to a corresponding increase in NOI. So you you know with a high degree of certainty that NOI is going to go up 2% a year without you really having to do anything. And uh, And then the last piece is credit enhancement. If a private equity backed manufacturing company is successful in growing the way that they hope they are, you know, after four or five years, often we have a much stronger, financially stronger company who's occupying our buildings. And the stronger that company gets, the less perceived risk there is, which allows us to sell at a lower cap rate at a higher profit down the road. So as a retail investor, I'm investment looks like this. I come to the table with, you know, let's say a hundred thousand, 500. I mean, I don't know how big your, uh, how large your equity partners are coming to the table with. What's the typical investment that someone's putting in? We, I would say, you know, our, our average investor is going to be, you know, on the low end of a high net worth investor, 
or the high end of, of what's called a retail investor, you know, usually somewhere between a hundred to 400,000. Okay. And, you know, as low as about 50, as high as about a million. But yeah, most of our folks are, you know, successful in other ventures. They like the passivity and they like the consistency of this, you know, really augmenting cash flow. And they, you know, basically take profits off the table from other ventures and put them in these type of projects. Really for that, again, predictable cash flow comes in monthly. It's just a nice little thing on your on your uh, checking account every month there. Gotcha. And then what is typically, I mean, is it a forever hold or you do you guys have a sort of a target exit date that you're working towards? Personally, as a as an investment group, we like being on the front end of, you know, kind of a 20-year lease. So because we're putting together these leases, we're always the you know, the first owner of a 20-year lease. We like to sell it after about five years. And the reason being is that gives us about 15 years left. It's a full triple net. And that's an attractive sell to the next buyer. Still a lot of meat in the bone. And we never have to worry about a releasing event. You know, that's still 15 years down the road. It's, I mean, some people like that uncertainty and you're able to kind of monetize it a bit if you're, you know, really competent at, you know, releasing or getting new tenants in. For us, we like the stability of being upfront on that where we never have to worry about having to go through a le- releasing event, assuming that, you know, there's no default on the lease. And when you sell 15 years left, that's really attractive to the next buyer, whether it be an investment group, a 1031 buyer, you know, even a, a pension fund, REITs. I mean, there's a, a wide variety of, of investment uh, entities that would be interested in that type of product. Are the returns structured as sort of a, do you guys have like a preferred return and then, you know, an IRR that you're targeting at the end? We do, we do, yeah, okay. and that's going to be very similar to other, you know, syndications or real estate investments. You know, ultimately, we typically will start, you know, between an eight and nine percent preferred return. The way we structure it, that pref actually increases year to year as that cash flow increases with the um, with the rent bumps, and then on the back end, we do return of capital plus a profit split. You know, very similar to other groups, uh, we do eighty twenty on the back end. But yeah, you know, ultimately we've been successful at delivering high teens IRRs, you know, in the past. Again, you know, a lot of that's dependent on the market that you're selling at. Um, you know, industrial has been fortunate over the last few years with the shift to, you know, increasing e-commerce. Uh, you know, manufacturing has been a, a strong asset class in terms of, of tenant strength and been a, been a good field to be in as, you know, real estate investors for the last couple of years. And is your typical investor, you know, doctor, lawyer, business, C-suite executive, that kind of, you know, somebody who's just, who's got, you know, they've been successful, they've got capital and they're, like you said, they're just looking for a place to supplement their cash flow and, and diversify their, their income. Yeah, I would, I would say that's probably about two thirds. And then, you know, we have probably about one third are folks who are working to get there and they, you know, most of our offerings the majority are open to accredited and non-accredited. So, you know, we'll, we'll start working with folks early. You know, we say, Hey, this is, this is a long dance you know, a long game. And, uh, you know, like, like any, we encourage folks to, Hey, pick a few sponsors that, you know, not just us, but, you know, look around, find sponsors you're comfortable with that have come, you know, well, well referred that, you know, start with a small amount. And if they communicate well, if they do what they say they do, then you should continue investing with them. And, you know, most, most people see better success with a small group of sponsors doing repeat investments than, you know, trying to cast too wide of a net. But again, you know, a little bit of an art form and, you know, choosing your picks well, but uh, yeah. yeah, that's, you know, kind of a goal on that side. Yeah. Some of the best advice I've ever gotten from a, 
professional passive investor was to diversify across asset class, geography, and operator. Yep. You know, don't be all in on Bernie Madoff. Uh, Certainly. Don't be all in on multifamily. Don't be all, you know, don't be all in on Dallas, Texas, you know, be, you know, pick, you know, get some storage in, in Dallas with this operator, get some multifamily in uh, Atlanta with this operator, get some triple net lease industrial in, in the Midwest with this operator and just spread that out so that, you know, one, one bad event is not going to take down your portfolio. Absolutely. Yeah. And I I think the best sponsors have, I mean, really in-depth expertise on certain geographies and certain asset types. And they may do other ones, but you talk to any any operator and they always have their go-to, right? And they go, I love this, you know, these two markets and I love doing this type of asset in those markets. And they know them well. And that's, you know, that's the operator I want to invest in those projects. And then, you know, find someone else whose specialty is different, like you said, and kind of build in that, that passive diversity across investments, you know, which you have the choice to do as an LP. Gotcha. And do you typically structure your deals as a fund or just individual offering? You know, we, we do individually offerings, excuse me, individual offerings. And, you know, we, we've gone back and forth on this. This is really kind of an interesting fundamental question on, hey, you know, do you, do you need that diversity across deals or are you better off diversifying your capital across different direct offerings. And, you know, in general, money's more efficiently used on a direct offering. You know, you don't have stagnant cash that sits there with the fund or the need to put it to work in maybe a suboptimal investment. So typically, you know, we we think that if given the choice and you're able to still hit your objective, you know, investment goals, you know, we we like we think the uh, the direct offering approach is slightly better. Yeah. It, for me, it's, it, a lot of it just comes down to keep it simple, stupid. I, I have an understanding of, of direct offerings a lot more than I do fund. Uh, it just gets, it gets a lot more complicated. So, you know, you're, you're talking to investors every day. How are you going about building trust with potential equity partners? Yeah, no, great question. The first starts with just getting to know someone, you know, I think personality goes a long way. I think it's uh you know, slightly underrated, you know, but just meeting someone who takes the time, you know, pre-COVID, we go out and meet for coffee, shake hands, you know, now it's, uh, you know, keep your social distance or video conference, but, you know, just taking the time there. And then the second piece before you ever get into a deal is deliver on what you say you're going to do. Um, you know, and that, that I call it micro trust, you know, micro steps toward really ex- ex- just getting yourself over that trust curve required for that first investment. And, you know, Hey, I'm going to follow up and do this, do it, you know, do it on time. Don't be late. Don't, don't even be an hour late. You know, if you say you're going to do it Wednesday at noon, do it Wednesday at noon or sooner. And, you know, the same goes once you get an investment, either deliver when you say you're going to. And again, it doesn't even need to be great news. Hey, stuff happens to investments all the time. Communicate when you say you're going to don't go dark when, you know, things go, uh, you know, maybe suboptimal for your, your investment plan here and just communicate it. Here's what we're looking at. Here's what we plan on doing. And we found such a, just an overwhelming support from our investor group to say, Hey, we like that. You, you talk to us, you pick up the phone when we call. And, you know, I, I tell other operators, that's the number one thing you can do is give someone singular responsibility for, you know, those investor relationships and, and give them someone that they know they can call and, and the other side will pick up. 
And if you're there, you're probably 85% of, of, you know, along the way of what you need to, you know, have a successful investor group. Yeah. You, you, anybody who's watching on video, I'm sitting here nodding my head the entire <laughs> time. Yeah, this is so key. And, you know, you'll often hear a lot of professional passive investors talk about, I didn't invest in the deal, I invested in the person or the group and communication goes a long way because like you said, there things happen. COVID happens, you know, we're, we're, we're passive investors in some, some multifamily deals. And I feel a lot better about the, the people who reached out to me as soon as it happened and talked about, okay, here's what, here's what's going on. Here's how it's impacting us. Here's what we're going to do going forward. And it wasn't good news. I mean, it was bad news, but it, it makes you feel like, you know what, my money's in good hands, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, there is risk to investing. So, you know, if you're somebody who sits there and worries about every little piece of bad news, this is probably not for you. Just, you know, just the idea of just communicating and just telling people, Hey, here's what's going on. That can go a huge, uh, go a long way. Absolutely. And, and if you, if you have some bad news that you have to share and you're able to, you know, kind of work through it, I feel like your, your investors will believe in you stronger on the back end there, just having been through that, you know, and they feel like they went through it with you instead of, you know, just being pushed to the sidelines and, and waiting to find out, you know, if you communicate and keep them part of the plan, then, you know, I think you've, you've probably, uh, you know, created an investor for life there. Yeah. Okay. So I have to ask this story and you brought it up in your intake form is that you raised capital for frozen pies. Yeah. <laughs> um, among other deals, but yeah, that was, that was one, um, one kind of interesting one that we did back in right at the, at the onset of COVID. Uh, so tell me about it. I mean, that's, I know that most of your, you know, your focus is mostly on triple net lease industrial, but I, I have to hear this story. What, uh, how did you get involved with raising capital for frozen pies? Yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was right down our wheelhouse. It was a, a large industrial cold storage building. We had actually been chasing cold storage for some time. You know, we really think, especially in the sub-market of industrial buildings, we think cold storage has a, a very large amount of appreciation just based on the increase of shipping. And really, it's just it's expensive to build new cold storage. So the existing inventory is really sought after right now. Yeah, finally had uh, found a, a great project up in, in Rochester, New York. We actually used to joke, we're like, yeah, these guys can keep their energy down by uh, just opening the doors <laughs> four months a year in the winter. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. get free cold storage. But yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so this this producer had been around some time and he basically had a, a company that ultimately co-packed frozen pies for white label brands like Walmart, you know, the great value for, you know, a bunch of different grocers, Kroger, a number of actually European lines. And you know, the deal was, was, it was a solid deal. We put it together and I was about almost fully done in terms of verbal commitments on filling up the equity on the project. It was about, it wasn't huge at the time. I think it was maybe two and a half mil. And right as like COVID started hitting full steam, you know, everyone, you went through it and I went through it. I mean, everyone got very concerned, you know, there was fear kind of hit the investment marketplace. No one quite knew where the bottom was going to be. And I had a, a huge amount of, you know, people that came and said, Hey, I'm really sorry. I've never done this before in my life, but I need to, you know, basically reverse this verbal commitment I have and keep, keep some dry powder, keep dry capital. And so all of a sudden, you know, we lost about two thirds of our commitments on the deal. And, 
you know, I'd sat down with, with the other principals and, um, you know, we'd say, hey, how, how do we get this project, which we still really believed in, how do we get it kind of over the hump in a way that is secure enough for, you know, our investors to, you know, kind of overcome the amount of uncertainty out here. And it was really interesting. There was just a, a lot of factors in play, but ultimately what we ended up doing was we said, hey, how can we de-risk this project even further and, you know, the seller was really on board. He's like, hey, just tell me how I can help. I want to get this deal closed. And it, it came down to the, the credit risk. And this deal, this operator had done a, a bit of a turnaround about two years prior after losing a contract with Walmart that they were able to um, ultimately get on back on the skids. But they had uh, one or two down years there. And so we actually were able to say, hey, if you sign a personal guarantee on this lease, you know, fully separate from your company, but an individual owner guarantee on this lease that adds, you know, a whole nother element of security. And we were able to do that. And that, that additional secondary guarantee on this, you know, set of income stream from the, um, from the investment was enough to, you know, get investors over the hump and, and us to be able to close, close on the deal. And fast forward here, I guess, oh my gosh, almost a year later, oh, that's depressing. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, almost a year later, um, you know, since the the start of COVID there, the operators done fantastic. You know, they were a, deemed an essential business all through the pandemic and actually are, are getting ready to open a, a second large facility down in Florida for, you know, additional manufacturing down there. So, you know, you came to, as we discussed when we first started that you came to this pretty much knowing nothing about real estate. You're a pilot, you know, you guys are all smart guys. I saw a lot of real estate from up there. Yeah, yeah, I saw a lot of real estate. (laughs) And you're technical, but you're also very single, you know, it's fairly single-minded, especially when you're you're a military pilot. What was, when you came to the table, you know, you had a family friend who owned the business. What was, what would you say was the key piece of knowledge that you had to learn that you think has allowed you to be successful? It's a great question. I guess maybe... Before talking about what was the most important new piece of information, I think, you know, kind of knowing, hey, what pieces were, were really similar? Um, so, you know, what I found was, you know, with, with you know, aviation in general, communication is key, right? You're, you're, you're really, you're building this, what they call situational awareness as a pilot. You're with your crew, everything's, you know, verbal, you're all in headset on an intercom, you're communicating with other pilots, you're communicating with the air traffic control, and really you're, you're building this picture that's constantly in flux. And I found that was a huge kind of carryover to real estate, especially with a commercial real estate deal. I mean, you have so many major stakeholders, everyone's in motion. You know, you have the lenders pushing their agenda, the seller wants to close tomorrow, the lender, you know, their, their you know, final loan committee doesn't meet for another month. And can they get everyone in the same room together? You know, you have title, you have, you know, the insurance policies you need to get modified, legal. And to me, that that piece all really kind of made sense, you know, coming coming together. And then, of course, your your main stakeholders, at least from from my purview uh, of responsibility, was was our investors. And, you know, that capital being able to, to convey the the opportunity in a way that, you know, really kind of highlighted its its high points and, you know, and it was still transparent about the risk and and doing a proper risk analysis, you know, with flying, especially military flying, we would, we would do a, um, was a o- ORM, I believe, where we would do a, you know, a full analysis of, hey, what is it we're trying to do here? What are the risks? And does it, does it make sense? Do the, do the rewards 
do what we're trying to achieve here, does it outweigh the potential risks of, of deciding to take off? And I think, you know, the same goes, especially with investor capital. We'll go, hey, understand what is the worst case scenario? What are we doing to mitigate this? And, you know, how are we really prioritizing the preservation of investor capital? So the, those pieces, I think, were really similar. And then, you know, really what was what was new and different to me, I think, was, I mean, really, it was just a, a very different technical piece in terms of how do you value real estate? How do you compare these different asset classes? How do you quickly accelerate your knowledge curve to be able to not only talk about what you're trying to sell, but to effectively, you know, compare that to your, your opportunity cost, right? I mean, that your, your standard passive investor is probably working with at least a half dozen different sponsors or looking at other deals or they should, if they're not, to yeah. be honest. And, yeah. and how can you compare what it is you're putting together with those and be able to say, Hey, here's, here's a comparative level of risk. And here's, here's why we think this is a better, better offering, or, Hey, here's why maybe, maybe this isn't right for you, you know, based on, you know, you're a little younger looking to, you know, accelerate the uh, accumulation of capital quickly. I mean, maybe, you know, more of a, a development high risk deal is more in, in line there. So I think really kind of learning about not just my core product, but the the space, that was probably the the most difficult hurdle early on to be able to, you know, communicate effectively there. You're a salaried employee, I assume, of of Mag Capital, correct? No, it's it's a combination okay. uh, profit share with, okay. with some Okay, so I don't want to. I don't want to. I, I don't want to like dig into much detail. I'm just trying to help people understand how it is that how it is that you are compensated. I mean, you're you're brought in. You know, when you raise capital, you're brought in on the general partnership on the deal. Absolutely, gotcha. And so you're participating in whatever the general partnership share is. You have a percentage of that. You know, you're a part of that general partnership. Correct. Yeah. Okay. I mean, really, the, the big picture piece, the way, especially the way the SEC looks at it is, you know, that that capital raising goal, you, you never want someone who strictly does that. They need to be part of the overall management team and they need to be really incorporated with, with all pieces at some level as as they work investors and, and raise capital for, you know, the, these particular avenues. But, you know, ultimately, that the thing the SEC wants to avoid is kind of a you know a money for hire type of you know environment, and there's there's really strict regulations around that piece. Um, but yeah, I mean ultimately you're looking for principals and people that are that have really strong vested interest in this project from start to finish, um, being you know overseeing the the accumulation of capital for these projects. Okay, so we get a lot into money, time, knowledge, and location. Uh, and we haven't really talked about time. And I assume that this is a full-time job. Is that correct? It is. Okay. More than a full-time job, 40 hours, or you? Uh, uh, it varies. <laughs> you know, when we're, <laughs> when we're mid-raise, it becomes 60, 80 hours, yeah, yeah. you know, right afterwards, it can be a light week. And, uh, okay. but yeah, I mean, I think one thing I really enjoy about it, especially as a, you know, as a father, as a husband, I have the ability to, you know, have some flexibility in terms of that work-life balance in a way that, you know, most corporate jobs can never provide. And each general partnership you become involved in adds to your long-term, you know, sort of cash flow, correct? Are you getting a little bit of cash flow off of them? Typically, general partners aren't getting a huge amount of cash flow off of their deals, but is that sort of what's happening? 
I mean, me personally, I, I put about 70% of my, you know, excess investment capital into these projects. You just put it and back in. I, I do. Yeah. And I, I tell folks, it's not that these are better than other, other deals, but you know, in general, my rule of thumb is invest in what, you know, invest in what you understand. And if you don't really get it and you're doing it because everyone else is doing it, you know, you're setting the stage to get burned. But yeah. these, these projects I know better than any other ones. Cause I'm, in it and waist deep from start to finish and look at everything. And, and honestly, I can, I think, present the opportunity to my investors better. And I'm like, Hey, last year I put probably 60% of my, my investment capital into these projects. And, and I'll tell folks, Hey, I'm putting X dollars into this right alongside you. And the two principals put, I mean, on average 10 to 15% of the, of the total equity stack comes from their pockets just as a co-invest. So, yeah. you know, when you, when you see the people who are running the show, putting their money where their mouth is, I think it's a, a much more compelling, you know, opportunity for investors to say, Hey, now, now I'm co-investing alongside these guys who are at the helm instead of really fronting the, the equity responsibility. Yeah, no, that's a huge part, a huge part of it. I mean, if, you, if you're working with a sponsor, that's not putting money into the deal, it's always a little bit of a red flag for me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, big time. Yeah. yeah. So, well, Neil Walgren, thank you so much for sharing with us today. You're, you're there at mag capital. If any of our listeners want to find out more about you, what would be the best way for them to reach out to you? Shoot me a note. So uh, I'm really responsive on email. So Neil, N-E-I-L, the proper way, <laughs> uh, at magcp for magcapitalpartners.com. So neil at magcp.com. Well, thank you very much, sir. It was great talking to you. Likewise, Neil. Thanks for having me on the show. Yep. Okay. That was Neil Walgren from Mag Capital Partners. We thank him for his time. It was great catching up with another Neil who spells his name correctly. So this is a little bit of a different episode, you know, we didn't really, a few things that we didn't get into, you know, so I'm, I'm going to wrap up is going to be a little different than our normal one, but I'll, I'll say for me, the key lesson learned on this interview was one is the difference between a fund and an offering. You know, we, we see a lot of, uh, private equity groups out there raising money for funds. And then, you know, of course we are doing, you know, we're raising capital for individual offerings. And that's also what, uh, mag capital is doing with, with Neil as well. As he talked about, there can be a, you know, it's nice with the fund, you've got diversification, but it also kind of dilutes your capital a bit. And so with a private offering, you know, I'm not saying one is better than the other. I just have a personal preference for an individual offering. Uh, one, it's simpler. I understand it a little bit better. You know, you, you, as an, as an individual investor, you know, thinking about putting your private capital into a, a private offering, you can have an understanding of that individual offering a lot more than you will where you're looking at a fund that's, you know, we're going to invest in mobile home parks and self-storage and, and multifamily and industrial. And, and you never know really at any given moment what they're going to go into. And so the returns can often be a little bit better in a private offering. Now, obviously sometimes it, it also, you know, usually higher, a uh, higher return usually means uh, potentially higher risk. For me, it just comes down to simplicity. I understand the private offering and individual offering more than I do the fund model. How did he acquire his knowledge and how, and what was that key piece of knowledge? You know, he had, he came from this, from a military aviation background, uh, had never really been involved in real estate. He had a family friend that had a private equity firm and he basically said, Hey, come here and help me raise capital and uh, I'll teach you real estate. And so he, he learned on the job 
And he talked about some of the key things that he had to learn to do well and the things that he brought from his military aviation background was communication, situational awareness, and risk analysis. A lot of you may, may or may not know, I sort of work in a military. My day job is working for the military right now, and I, and I can I resonate with that. You know, they are, when, especially with military aviation, when you're in the air, it's a constantly changing situation, and they have what they call situational awareness. That's what you're always trying to keep an eye on. You know, what's, what's the threat? What's the advantage? Where's the ground? Who am I talking to? So, so I would say for him, it really came down to just learning to take what he had learned from his military, military aviation background and bring that uh, to the table for MAG Capital Partners. How much money did it take him to get started in his chosen niche? As I said, you know, he, he was not an investor before he came to this and uh, he taught, but he did talk about that. He does invest 60% of his uh, investment capital in their deals. And he said, they, uh, they actually take, uh, they take accredited investors, they take sophisticated investors as well. Uh, and he said it's low as low as 25,000. Uh, so, and that's sort of what I hear from a lot of, um, private equity firms is it's usually 25 to $50,000 is usually what your minimum investment is going to be. Uh, how much time do they spend on their real estate endeavors now that it's up and running? <laughs> I can say, you know, capital raising, as he said, is a, there's some days where it's just 40 hours a week. And there's others when you're in the middle of a raise where it's 60 to 80 hours a week. It's really, really, uh, you're really working hard. Could he do this strategy from any in the world? I would say they, they invest nationally, but he, he mostly, he mostly deals with clients that are here in the United States. And, you know, you obviously with COVID times, we're not, we're not meeting people face to face very much, but we are talking to people here in the United States, uh, doing zoom calls with them. And it can get, it would be a challenge, I think, to just raise capital for, you know, from Thailand, unless you're raising capital from investors in Thailand and, and deals in Thailand. So, okay. Once again, that was Neil Walgren from mag capital partners. I encourage you to shoot him an email at neil at magcp.com. Once again, that was N E I L the correct spelling of Neil at magcp.com. I'm Neil Henderson. We're doing this all again next week. Thanks for listening to the road to family freedom. Let's hit the road. Bye. Hey, before you go, if you like the show, we would be delighted if you'd head over to Podchaser and leave us an honest review and do let us know why you like the show, how long you've been listening and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining and let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at roadtofamilyfreedom.com and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels on your road to financial freedom. <laughs>